Our, our first scripture this morning comes from the book of John, and it's a story about Nicodemus's visit with Jesus. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do, you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Verily, truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that anyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he might be saved through him. And our second scripture comes from the Second Kings. One day, Elisha was passing through Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to have a meal. So whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for a meal. She said to her husband, Look, I am sure this man who regularly passes our way is a holy man of God. Let us make a small roof chamber with walls, And put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when he came there, he went up to the chamber and lay down there. He said to his servant, Geshe, call the Shunammite woman. When he had called her, she stood before him. He said to him, say to her, since you have taken all this trouble for us, what may be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I live among my own people. He said, What then may I be done for her? Gehisha answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. When he had called her, she stood at the door. He said, At this season, in due time, you shall embrace a son. And she replied, No, my lord. 
O, O man of God, do not deceive your servant. The woman conceived and bore a son at that season, in due time, as Elisha had declared to her. When the child was older, he went out one day to his father among the reapers and complained to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. He carried him and brought him to his mother. The child sat on her lap until noon, and he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of the God, closed the door on him, and left. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, so that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. He said, Why go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, It will be all right. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not hold back for me unless I tell you. So he set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Geshe, his servant, Look, there is a Shunammite woman. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is the child all right? She answered, It is all right. When she came to the man of God, At the mountain, she caught hold of his feet. Geshe approached to push her away, but the man of God said, Let her alone, for she is in bitter distress. The Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not mislead me? He said to Geshe, Gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, give no greeting, and if anyone greets you, do not answer, and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave without you. So he rose up and followed her. Kahasi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. He came back to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on the bed. So he went in and closed the door and on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got up on the bed and lay down upon the child, putting his mouth upon his mouth, his eyes upon his eyes, and his hands upon his hands. And while he lay bent over him, The flesh of the child became warm. He got down, walked once to and fro in the room, then got up again and bent over him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite woman. So he called her. When he came to him, he said, Take your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she took her son. And left. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, it's a lot of scripture this morning, but it's a story that uh, both of these stories are are absolutely incredible to read, and I thought we needed to read uh, all of them. We're in the second week of our series, Resurrection Stories. Uh, the Bible is miracles, and I think that the most extraordinary miracles are the miracles of life. When 
when God brings life back into one who has died, or indeed when God brings life into the world. It's one of the most incredible things we see happening in the Bible. And we see that happening several times throughout the Bible, leading up, of course, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ at Easter. Now, we're in Lent, as I said with the kids earlier. We're in a time to prepare ourselves for Easter, to reflect on that resurrection. And we're going to do that by reflecting on some of the stories of resurrection that occurred in the Scripture and figuring out what that means for us today. Now, last week, we examined the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness when Satan attempted to get Jesus himself to do what he knew was wrong, either in order to save himself or make himself rich or even just to feed himself. Now, Jesus resisted this temptation, of course, and lived a sinless life. And this was an important part of his story because it would be so easy for us to say, well, Jesus was sinless because God protected him, or Jesus was sinless because there was nothing to tempt him, right? This instance, this experience that we talked about last week, shows us that Jesus' life on earth was fully human. It was not without temptation. It was not without struggles. It was not without strife, but it was without sin. We also looked at the story of Elijah, which is a bit confusing because it sounds just like who we talked about today, Elisha, right? Last week was Elijah with a J, this week with an S-H. Elisha is a disciple of Elijah, and Elijah was assumed into the heavens, and Elisha was left behind to be the de facto leader of the prophets. That's That's who we're talking about today. Now, last week, Elijah came to a woman who was destitute and poor. She had absolutely nothing to her name. All she had was a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, enough to make one last morsel for her and her son, and Elijah asks for it. She gives it to him, and he eats, and the flour and the oil lasts for days, and in the end, Elijah raises her son from the dead. But today, the story is kind of similar. Elijah is a disciple of Elijah, uh, travels frequently, as is his role as a prophet. Right? His job is to go from community to community to community to spread the word of God, to spread that, that Jesus Christ was coming, that the Messiah was on his way, to prepare their hearts and their minds for the coming of Jesus. Right? That's why Elijah is such an important prophet for us to talk about in Lent, because that's what we're doing. We're preparing our hearts for Jesus. <clears throat> so as he's traveling, he comes to a particular region called Shunem, and he finds a wealthy family who's willing to take him in. And as it happens, as he comes through, each time he comes through Shunem, they offer him a meal and maybe a place to stay. And at one point, uh, the woman tells her servants to go upstairs and, and build a room on the roof with, you know, a bed and a lamp and all the sort of stuff that you need. And that would be his place to go whenever he was in town, right? Now, these two women are very different. One was destitute, one is quite wealthy. But they're also very similar in the sense that both of them were sort of rejected by parts of society. The destitute woman, of course, was cared for by no one. If she was, she would have had something. And the wealthy woman was barren. That was, that was a, a big uh, social faux pas. Really, That was something that people really didn't want to be. People really looked down on you. <clears throat> and when we're talking about 600 years before Jesus... We're talking about a time period especially when a woman who couldn't have a child wasn't really a woman. As tragic as this idea is, it was the idea of the time. So in both cases, God sends his prophets into the lives of women whose society has said aren't really all the way what they could be. So some time goes by. We know the child is getting older. the, The Bible doesn't tell us his age, but you know, you can put yourself in the story, right? About what age? 
would your child be up, running around, talking, and out in the fields with his dad, right? Five, six years old maybe, maybe four at the youngest, right? Uh, maybe a lot older, we don't really know. But we know that some time has passed, we know that the boy is older, and we know that this elderly couple is even older. And the boy runs up to his father and he says, my head, my head, and the father orders a servant to carry him into the house. And it might sound a little cruel and crass, but I actually wonder if the father was actually even capable of carrying his own son. These were a very old couple, right? So he orders a servant to carry him into the house, and he lays him in his mother's lap, and at noon he dies. Now Elijah, while this is all going on, is 15 miles away in Mount Carmel. <clears throat> 15 miles uh, in the Middle East at this time period wasn't a tremendous distance. It's more than it is now. Some of you may have driven that far to come to church this morning. But, uh, but that was about an hour and a half by donkey. So <clears throat> the Shunammite, Shunammite woman orders her servants to grab a donkey, and she says, take me as fast as you can. Don't stop till we reach Mount Carmel. So they travel for an hour and a half, two hours maybe, to Mount Carmel. They arrive, and Elijah sees them in the distance and says, ask her if everything's okay. And she says it is. She says it's all right, right? <clears throat> she says it's all right. I don't know if that's because she was embarrassed to ask. I don't know if it's because she was angry with Elisha. I don't know if it's because she was angry with God. But in that fleeting moment, she says, everything's all right. Then she falls down and prostrates herself, grabs the feet of Elijah. Gehazi, his servant, he pushes her away. And, he says, and Elisha says, no, no, wait, she wouldn't do this unless something was going on that God didn't tell me about. Right, Elijah has this realization. He says, God hasn't revealed something to me, but she's clearly upset about something. <clears throat> she says, why would God send me a son just to take him away? Why would God do this to me? Didn't you promise me a son? So Elijah sends a servant, and the mother does what any mother does, right? The bear claws come out, and she says, look, that's fine, but I'm not leaving here without you, Elijah. I'm not leaving here and going back to my dead son without you. So he does. And once again, we see the power of intercessory prayer. When we hear people say that the least we can do is pray, all we can do is pray, that's all we can do now. I've said it myself. It's something we need to stop saying. Because here again, we see God doing extraordinary things when someone prays. Elijah does the same thing his predecessor Elijah does. He lays over the child, he lines himself up with him, and he prays to God. And after praying, the boy sneezes and wakes up, and he's taken to his mother. What an absolutely extraordinary story of life being returned to one who thought that life didn't belong to her anyway. She was barren, incapable of creating life. And then through God, that capability was restored. Through God, she was restored. Then her son loses his life, and through God, his life is restored. It's perhaps no coincidence that Elijah and Elijah both find themselves with individuals who had been <clears throat> kind of downgraded in society, who didn't quite have everything the way they'd like to have them. But through God, their lives are restored through God. They experience the most incredible miracle, I think, in the Bible, the miracle of new life. And every day of our lives, we're told who doesn't have work. Every day in social media, on television, on the radio, even amongst our friends and loved ones, we hear who doesn't have worth or has less worth than the others, right? As if it's our job as humankind to figure out who is important and who can be ignored and rejected. <clears throat> Guys, it occurs to me that one of the most consistent themes in the Bible, like every time God has to come back here, right, through a prophet or through Jesus himself, you know, every time I, I can imagine God saying, you need to quit that or I'm going to turn this car around, 
It's when people have decided that other people don't matter anymore. Elijah and Elijah come to show us that these people that society has rejected are in fact so blessed to God that God would restore life. Jesus came to say that the Greeks and the Gentiles and all of these other people who had been summarily rejected, even the Samaritans, the enemy of the people, were loved especially by God, and they put them on a cross for it. Each time God sends someone to talk to us as humanity, it seems always to include the theme that every person created by God is loved by God, and we have got to find a way to figure out how to do that ourselves. As Christians, we proudly boast when we've decided that someone is not worthy, that we were rejected or kicked out or boycotted or, or oppressed, someone because they didn't meet our idea of someone who is doing everything right. Sometimes we even hear that to be a true Christian means to oppose something completely, as, uh, or someone completely. As Methodists, we actually have a little bit of heritage here with John Wesley, who uh, one of his many controversies was his ministry to the people in prison. He went to debtors' prisons especially, right, where people who had uh, you know, made the decision to borrow money they didn't have, and when they were unable to repay it, they were thrown in jail until a family member came to bail them out to pay their debt. And John would bake bread and bring it to them and pray with them and anoint them with oil and do all of these things, and society would tell him, church leaders would tell him, that these people have made their decisions, they're bad people, why are you wasting your time on them, Right? <clears throat> We meet, Nicodemus, we meet Nicodemus this morning, who similarly hears a little bit about what God calls us to do. Every day of our lives, we hear who doesn't have worth, and every day of our lives, we choose whether to do good or to sin. Sin at its root is, is, is a belief, <coughs> excuse me, that we have the right to do things that harm others, and in fact, perhaps one of the worst kinds would be idolatry. Paul Tillich is a theologian who's famous for, amongst other things, his phrase that idolatry is a belief that anything is more ultimate than the ultimate. When we believe that anything is more important than God, we've committed idolatry. And indeed, when we decide that some aspect of God's creation is not worthy of God's love, that's when we decide that we know more than God about who God loves. So every day of our lives we make those decisions, and here we head towards Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a Jewish leader, a person who uh, is responsible for teaching the Scriptures, right? That's his responsibility in life. So this is someone who's pretty smart, someone who knows the Bible, and he comes to Jesus at night. I don't know if the author tells us that to imply he came in secret or what, but he comes to Jesus at night and he says, look, Jesus, everything that you do is from God. It can't be anything else. To believe that anyone else could do the things that you do and not be from God would be blasphemy, right? That just doesn't make any sense. The things that you do come from God, so tell me more. And Jesus tells him, you have to be born again, right? And Nicodemus thinks, okay, well, I've finally found it. He is nuts. They were right, right? He says, you have to be born again. He says, how can I be born again? I'm a grown man. How can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, no, you have to be born of the water and the Spirit, You've already been physically born, right? Born of flesh and of God. You've already physically been born. You've been born of the water. You've been born of the flesh. Now, you need to be born from God. Jesus is telling us that this transformation has to happen, that this complete renewal of who he is and who he was has to happen. 
Christianity is not a part-time gig. Our faith in God isn't just something that we can do on the side. It, it consumes who we are or it's nothing at all. It's either everything to us or nothing. <clears throat> Nicodemus is told by Jesus that he has to be born again because his life has to be so fundamentally incompatible with what it once was. <clears throat> we as human beings are unique in our ability to choose how we live our lives. I don't know how many of you like TED Talks. Any of you are my only, only nerd in here? Well, it looks like it. So TED Talks are a, uh, essentially a lecture series that you can watch online. They're free, and it's anybody who has something really unique to share about, the, uh, it's about technology, engineering, and design. And there's all sorts of <clears throat> subjects out there, all sorts of ideas uh, posited out there. And uh, last week I was listening to a TED Talk from an evolutionary scientist who was talking about human ev evolution and especially human ev uh, evolution when it comes to society. He says that we're unique as human beings and the only species on earth that specializes, right? We're the only species on earth that does something specific to us that we hone a skill, we get better at it, we do it, and then we trade that with other people. The way we do that is through money, right? We trade our skill for money, and then we trade that money for someone else's skill, right? Chances are, except for a few of you, uh, you didn't grow the food that you ate uh, last night, right? You, you bought that from a grocery store. They paid a farmer. You know, all these things change hands because each of us finds something we're good at and hones that skill. I don't think it's any coincidence, then, that God designed us in such a way God designed us in such a way that our responsibility in life would be to hone a skill, to hone an ability to do something that benefits society as a whole, that benefits the world. And so that's the story of Nicodemus, that the God who can give life back to a woman who had lost it, that God can give life back to her child, that God can give life back to anyone that God chooses, is also the God that calls us to be <clears throat> the source of good in the world. Jesus' ministry and demise upon the cross gave us a means to choose good. We're not meant to or earnestly capable of doing it on our own. The echoes of sin repeat to us each day that we are the only one that matters, that we only do what's best for ourselves, and that we've got to look out for what matters, which is us. But in fact, if we're going to heed uh, the theologian Paul Tillich's world, uh, word that we don't place anything more ultimate than the ultimate, then we've got to figure out that the most important thing we do in our entire lives is serve God. And we serve God by serving others. <clears throat> because, friends, if we're willing to be made new by God, we can do extraordinary things for God. Lent is a time to prepare ourselves to be made new, to reflect on our being born again. And if we don't think we've gotten to that point yet, to figure out how to get there. I hope that this Lent is bringing you new opportunities to serve God, and that you're taking seriously the call during Lent to reflect on your own faith in God. As we arrive closer and closer to Easter, I hope and pray for myself that I can become more like Christ in my approach to the world. And my prayer for each of us in this place is the same. That we can live our lives as people made brand new, who take on only Christ, and who love and serve the Lord. Amen.